Hi and welcome to Elsie's Mundo uh, Book Club podcast. Good evening, Adam. Good evening, Elsa. <laughs> and welcome back to my podcast. So it's an honor to be back. Thank you. Um, so today our topic is going to be what we have read during this year. And since this is the last episode for 2022, any books that you particularly liked or would you like to recommend? Yes. Of the books that I read this year, I do have a lot of fun ranking them, um, uh, especially towards the end of, of the year. I found that's almost one of my great joys in reading is mm -hmm. if not rereading at this point to look over what I've read throughout the year, even the titles can still evoke some sensation in me and some feeling. And so, uh, so when I go through the books that I've read and I try to figure out what's meant the most to me, uh, one of the books I'm happy to say is, um, called a swim in the pond in the rain pardon me a swim in a pond in the rain mm. it's by booker prize winner george saunders and it's essentially a master class in russian short stories oh wow i've always uh, so the author in addition to being a booker prize winner is a professor at the university of syracuse and uh he has taught the russian literature class for 20 years and this book I have to admit, though, uh, when we're talking about books, I get tired of my own voice, and I would like to know what you've read that you read, if it's appropriate for the format. Of what have course. you read that you enjoyed this year? I think the best book I've ever read this year was by a Thai author, and it was called The Memories of the Memories of the Black Rose Cat. Ooh. Yes, check the author is. Vira Porn Niti Prafa. Um, if you listen to the podcast <laughs> regularly, sometimes I mention this mm -hmm. book because I'm I'm still under the influence of it. It's really nice. In a way, it's very similar to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, The Hundred Years of Solitude, because it's also like a family story. But also at the same time, it's it has this very typical Asian representation of literature, the flow of stories that one story comes from another one and nothing is really finished, but everything is just like sweeps you or, you know, you get lost in the current or in the stream. Like in Asia, there are these huge rivers that are, you know, giving life in Bangkok, it's Chao Praya. And I felt myself like on a journey in Chao Praya and then you can see the different architectural styles and, you know, some of them have like um, even Portuguese origins. Some of them have Chinese origins. Some of them have Thai origins. And the main, the, the main theme of the book is also adoptions, how these people who are the immigrants in Thailand, like a Chinese family, how are they adopted by Thailand, but also how are they still tied to their country of origin? And it's in a way there, this, this topic of adoption, um, becomes very visible in two lines. The one line is, 
it's really about an adopted son that the Chinese family couldn't have their own children. So they adopted a Thai boy who was supposed to continue the family business. And, and also in a metaphorical way or in allegorical way, it is about the adoption of different traditions by Thai people through the different influences or, or how we, we, um, expats or immigrants who live here, how we adopt the country's traditions. That was a very, very interesting, interesting read. I, I full heartedly recommended it. I was uh, struck just now by your use of the word we, <laughs> because you are indeed uh, an expat, as you put it, you're, you're living abroad. Did you see some of yourself in that story? Oh yeah, of course, definitely. Definitely. Let me just find what I wrote about it. I keep my reading list not on Goodreads. I know you use Goodreads, right? I do. But I, I use the one, it's called Moi. It's in Hungarian, but, but it means bookworm. Uh, oh. English. <laughs> so I try to like upload also like some books. So just, you know, to expand the community and expand some more books. And honestly, in Asia, I read mostly Asian books, uh, because there is a wide range of it. And um, I just want to want to read something original or something like that. However, my parents and my sister are going to come soon to visit me. And I asked them, please bring me some Hungarian contemporary literature. <laughs> I really <laughs> miss but I don't like translations if it's available in English, you know, so I like I prefer like, original Hungarian texts, not mm. translated ones. What about Me you? too. Do you read in other languages? I prefer original Hungarian texts. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what, what other languages do you read? I read in four languages, mm -hmm. um, uh, but that's using the word read in a very uh, elastic fashion because I don't read in other languages for pleasure necessarily. I read pleasurable books, but I read with the intent of improving my understanding of the language. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so there's a twofold purpose. I don't just kick my shoes up on the chair and then, and then just settle into a good book in Norwegian, for example. But, uh, I have found some enjoyable books. I've been given some enjoyable books, uh, in Norwegian, some of them, uh, Almost all of them by you, as a matter of fact. <laughs> oh, okay. Nice to know. <laughs> <laughs> and they still, uh, they still charm me to this day. On which but, page uh, are you on them? <laughs> say again? On which page are you in them? <laughs> I've finished them all, I'm happy to say. Oh, wow. um, Congratulations. Indeed, and thank you very much for sending uh, Carl over Kanalsgaard um, all the way to, I guess he must have sent it to Japan. Yeah. Uh, it was thoroughly appreciated. And so what I found, by the way, for anybody out there who is learning a language, look for books by this particular author, Carl over Kanalsgaard, in the language you're trying to learn. His sentences are very easy, and the books are very long. And the storyline is very simple. It's always uh, in particular about him and his family and things that they're doing. And he's known for that style of writing. Very simple, 
books that are very detailed about which side the bread was facing when he made a peanut butter sandwich when he was 14 years old and his parents had left him alone for the first time and things like this. Um, I would love to see the Spanish translation of that book because, you know, Spanish is known to have like the literary version of language and then the common language that is spoken. Sí, yo también. I think that would be a lot of fun. That's 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 why it's so hard to read uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez in original because you know all of those high aristocratic vocabulary and stuff like that. I'm just like, okay, it took me two months to read the Love in Time of Cholera or something. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah. Well, to return ever so briefly then to the theme of short stories, Gabriel Garcia Marquez has a lovely collection of short stories called The Third Bank of the River, mm. which is the title of one of those stories. And I enjoyed that um, quite a bit, actually. He got his start as a newspaper journalist, and so he's kind of used to short form uh, writing. And I think it really comes out very well. Of course, you can't complain about his long form either. Mm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. That's right. Especially when you have a job, a full-time job and things like that, then you have to, like, you know, juggle with your time and stuff like that. Yeah. Talking about reading time, I could see your whole April was taken up by Ulysses, by James Joyce. <laughs> How did you enjoy that? There is no plus or minus sign uh, next to it, so I don't know. Yes, for our listeners. Um... When I make uh, my year-end list of books, instead of writing a long exposition about the book, I just put a plus, which means I would recommend it, a minus, which means I would not, or in the case of some books like Ulysses, nothing at all. <laughs> what does it mean? Unfinished or got lost so, in the life? So for one, that's correct. I did not finish it. I read that book for a month, and I made it 400 pages in, and... I did not want to spend any more time with Ulysses. I did not enjoy that book at all. Oh my god. Oh uh, yeah, I, that, that was going to be my next question. So do you read books because they are like classic or good sounding or you know if you are a well-read person you have to read these and these and these books or do To the you... contrary, I stay away from those books. <laughs> I, I religiously avoid them because I think there's probably so many more interesting things that haven't seen the light of day, that don't have a great critical review. And honestly, my reading experience with Ulysses reaffirmed that. Uh, Ulysses, <laughs> for English readers, tops the list of the best books ever read, uh, ever written. And it has done so almost since the day it was published in 1923. Oh, my um, it's, it's consistently ranked as the best book written in English, and I waited until my 42nd year to read this book. I said, okay, I'm going to, to tackle Ulysses. And for the entire month of April, I, I read it. It is a dense book with a lot of illusion. It's uh, one of the first big modernist uh, books. If you can think of T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and layers of illusion that, that take place in that poem. It's very similar along those lines. Mm -hmm. uh, but after a month, I gave up on page 400 and something. I did read the cliff notes after that, but I don't know if I put that in my reading list. Yeah. I don't know. Have I you... No, I haven't dared to start it. I, we just learned a lot about it in, at the university in English literature classes, but 
I'm just like, nope, <laughs> I, I need to wait, like, you know, until the 42nd year of mine. <laughs> so like, yeah. seven, seven more years and then after that, maybe I'm ready for it or I don't know. Speaking of disappointments, for me, it was Pachinko. Have you heard of it? I have it sitting unread on my, in my bookshelf. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, everybody also ranks it like the best Korean, you know, contemporary book, which talks about the the sad and threatening history with Japan and how Japan invaded them and like how this little Korean girl went to Japan, married a Japanese man, came back to Korea and things like that. This also like I, I heard that it, it tries to be this dynasty book kind of thing. There was even like um short um, series made of it for TV or for you know online streaming things. But I was just reading it and then after the page 60 I'm just like no I don't know I I am hard to please as a reader I like the stories as a mosaic I love Marcus because you kind of have to piece it together for yourself or that's why I love I love this Viraporn Nitri Paplap because she uses this Thai author she uses different stories different family lines different um lines in the plot so a lot of things don't make sense until you come to the end and then you just have this big aha moment like oh okay so this was the perspective of the grandma this was the perspective of the son this was the perspective of the grandson and then you as a reader you put the whole story together for you but whereas in pachinko my problem was that it was just like yes she was sick okay now we go to the doctor the doctor gave her some medicine and things like that and then every chapter was from a different perspective but then in the different perspective you know i just read the same story again but from a different angle or from a different point of view and that that bore me to death really i was just <laughs> like no 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 it's like you know if if a book doesn't like swallow me in it's just not worth holding on to it. That um, thank you for for mentioning that uh, because a you can save me the trouble of reading Pachinko, which uh, <laughs> is actually a gift from a friend. They asked me to read it on a recent trip to Canada, mm-hmm. and I knew I wasn't going to read it, so I left it here. And I have not told them yet. Uh, <laughs> okay, well now now probably if if she or he listens to it, <laughs> he or she learned the sad truth. <laughs> Yes, um, let me apologize. Um, it's always, you know, and that's it's always such an awkward situation. But have you had every book lover has had that happen where somebody gives you a book that they recommend highly, and you just don't get around to it, yeah. or, or it sits there and collects dust. Oh, what a feeling! Yeah, but I'm I don't want to like you know discourage you from reading Pachinko. Maybe you might like it very much, but um. It, maybe it was just me who didn't. A lot of people like it. That's why they make like a big feature film and then short series from it. So, you know, a lot of people really like it. Well, that's a, and that's a good point. I had a discussion recently about popular opinion in literature. In the hunt for the next thing to read, you have decided to look at Goodreads uh, end of the year ranking, best of 
2021 ranking. They break it down. They do a great job breaking it down into fiction, nonfiction, fantasy, science fiction, romance, mystery, uh, poetry, and all kinds of every category you'd want to take a look at. And I tried reading the most recommended books and the books that were at the bottom of the most recommended books list. And for any astute listener, it will not come as any surprise as to which ones I thought were better. And indeed, they're not so recommended ones. The ones that had the lower amount of recommendations, but just enough to make the list, they're still in the top 20. But number one and number two are going to be, you know, uh, the Hunger Games and, and uh, the girl with the the girl who kicked the dragon's nest and things that are very popular. And I'm sure they're both very good, but it's not really what I'm looking for uh, in my literary experience. I'll hear enough about those things and other kinds of media. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fine. I was thinking maybe that maybe we put a higher expectation to them. Or maybe I think like the best books are also the books that are easily, you know, digestible mm. or easier to digest than, than, than for example, uh, Memories of the Memories of the Black Rose Cat or like, you know, because it's, it's a very complex story at the, in the middle of it, you can just get lost and just like, okay, what the heck am I reading about? Is it really worth it? Whereas, you know, when there is a plane story plot or the blame mm. plot line for me that's just not interesting it's just like you yeah. know i can read a 20 line synopsis of that as well there yeah. is not a discreet a very descriptive language or do you like, think that's a sign of maturity as a reader yes and my snobbism <laughs> <laughs> Well, I take that for granted. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't know. I think like it's maturity of a reader in the sense of being or reading all the time because the simple plot lines like Hunger Games, like, okay, there is a fight and let's, you know, let's conquer uh, that Mr. Mr. Snow, the president, or I don't, I don't even remember who was the name of the bad guy. You know, it's just not satisfactory anymore whereas if you have a very rushed life and you don't have anything to read or you don't have time to read or or you know your uh maybe your job is too de demanding and then you have to do a lot of hard work which means like maybe i don't have to do a lot of hard work that's why i like to read complex literature <laughs> never mind <laughs> so you know it's like <laughs> I hope my I hope my boss is not listening right now. But <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Like if if your if your daily routine is boring or if you don't make like you know super hard and complex decisions about other people's lives as your job description, then you would enjoy the simple literature or not even literature, but called like just fan fiction or whatever because that you don't need that big excitement in your life. But if for me, okay, I have a very the same routine every day. I, I need something more to widen my perspectives in my reading, at least. So I don't know. I think while accepting that as a as a plausible explanation, I think you're not giving yourself enough credit. I think you're just a very mature reader, and you've read the seven basic plot lines and you know rehashed a million different ways. And you're uh, on the lookout for something new. 
course, you know, that's easy for me to say because I'm talking to you from your home in Bangkok. You're in, are you in, Bang you're in Bangkok? Yes, I'm in Bangkok. Yes, yeah, so where you where you were born and raised, correct? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's another thing, you know. I what I mentioned earlier. I just love Asian literature because I can get it here. There is not a coincidence that I got into Murakami books last year. Here you have all the books always available in English translations, even in Japanese. You can get them in Thailand. We have the same Kinokuniya bookstore, but the uh, Japanese, <laughs> Japanese. Oh, really? <laughs> they, they, these are Japanese-originated uh, books. So let me let me share this with you then. the The name for this is how you say bookstore in Japanese, <clears throat> and it's just like it is in English. The first word is book, and the last one means store. So book in Japanese is home, and store is ya. So if you go to a ramen store, it's a ramen ya. And if you go to a bookstore, it's a honya. So that's how you say bookstore in Japanese, in case you ever need to find a bookstore. In Japan. <laughs> Thank you. I hopefully have to find a bookstore in Japan at some point. Yeah, as I said, in I like to read Asian literature because it's available, but it's not only Japanese, although in Thailand people really love the Japanese culture. But of course, Thai literature, there are much more. Like in Europe, I would... I would have never been able to find like this this writer, Veraporni Tripapa. And I've been reading a lot of literature from Brunei, from um, Laos, from Myanmar, from Sri Lanka, and you know, from all of these, from all, all, all around Southeast Asia. And I, I really enjoy it. I've been really enjoying it. That is a literature of which I am largely ignorant. And so I can't wait to talk more about some of these books. Um, but I want to, I want to, so, you know, the worst question you can ask a reader is what's the, what's your favorite book? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, but I felt the same way uh, about the best book I've read this year. Mm -hmm. uh, because I, this has been a really good year for my reading. I've read some phenomenal books. Uh, that was one of them. That's the one that, I profit from in large respect, but I can say the same about, for example, a work of fiction mm -hmm. that I absolutely adored. And there's something of a funny story there. Um, the book is called Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. I can see the two plus signs behind it. <laughs> it's a joy to read. It's a joy to spend time with the main character who is a, um, he is a man on his deathbed and he is a priest and he's the son of a priest and he's the grandson of a priest. His whole family are preachers mm -hmm. and he's a very learned man. He spent, and I don't think of, I think of priests kind of as specialists, like you call mm -hmm. a priest the same way you call a plumber. Like if, you, if your spirit isn't feeling good or oh, wow. you need to, to go talk to God, then you call a priest. Mm -hmm. um, I forget that they are very learned individuals, that he spent his time really absorbing the massive literature behind that surrounds the Bible, and of course, absorbing the Bible itself as a work of literature, a work of history, and a work of religion. And in on his deathbed, as it were, as this, as this person is very ill, and he's writing a letter to his son, uh, he really, in a very interesting way, 
puts a mirror up to his own life and up to the world around him in a way that backwoods, this, the story takes place in rural Kansas. And, and a lot of it takes place in a time period that I know very little about, the 1800s and the early 1900s in Kansas. But nonetheless, it comes across as a very cosmopolitan, metropolitan type existence, not in terms of buildings, but in terms of ideas that are in terms of theological ideas. He's always got a reference point to know where he is in the frame of of uh, of his place in the larger world. Add add to that just a really creative use of language. And you have a book that I would highly recommend. And I did recommend it to someone who said, uh, I said, they were looking for a book by Carlo Vukanovskard in this bookstore. And I said, and the bookstore didn't have it. And I said, well, if you like that, maybe you'll like Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. The person said, I read it, didn't like it. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. so that's what like... opinions are for. Mm. Yeah, I see. So I want to give a shout out to that book. I want to give a shout out to a book on the opposite end of the spectrum, fiction book, Booker Prize winner, captivating in all ways, shapes and forms, and as far from an easy to recommend book as it gets. Uh, this is by Marlon James, and it's called Moon Witch Spider King. It's volume two in his uh, series and the series that he's writing. And he's something of an African folklorist, a modern African folklorist. Um, he does not shy away from violence. He does not shy away from homosexual themes. Uh, and he does not shy away from, uh, at times, characters that it's dip difficult to sympathize with or empathize with. His job is to be a trickster storyteller. And I enjoyed the book when I read it. I enjoyed it very much when I read it. Can't say I understood everything. But here's the funny thing. Just two days ago, I was in a library, haha, and I happened to see that it was a recent acquisition in this library. So I put my book down, I opened up to a random page, and I read it, and it was so difficult to put the book down. It pulls you in as far as language goes. I can recommend it to you, Elza, but it's not easy to recommend broadly. But it is, uh, it's an African mythology. Um, oh, wow. That that's new and he's just creating it not out of thin air he's weaving together a lot of the traditions of african folklore and turning it into a new uh, into a new story and this story is in three parts i love intertextuality so that's my this is so much so that <laughs> that's my favorite thing okay cool thank you moon witch moon witch spider king yes hmm by Marlon James. Thank you. I will definitely have a look into that. Um, how do you choose your your readings other than the Goodreads list? This book, uh, I didn't even know it was coming out. I read volume one, mm -hmm. and then I was in a bookstore, and I was like, volume two is out? And that's such a lovely surprise, that serendipity of, oh, it's like seeing, I don't know what it's like, but it was just the most wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like, like when you have a an appointment to talk to someone about books and they are an hour early and you're like oh great i get to talk about books an hour earlier than i thought 
Thank you. Yes. Speaking about second parts and speaking about new books and things like that, I am proud to announce that my favorite, ever favorite author, who is, I'm not sure, Singaporean or Malaysian, Tan Tuan Eng, is writing his third book. The, uh, he's, he's my all-time favorite. Like I read uh, The Garden of the Evening Mists at least six or seven times. Last time I, I read see it, it here on the list for this year as well. <laughs> of course, because this time I got to go to Malaysia and I was sitting in the Cameron Highlands where the book was inspired and where the book was also written and read the book, the entire book on the tea fields. That was just super magical, magical experience. Like the whole, you know, this whole Asian storytelling of, um, you know, complete vagueness. Like, mm. you don't know if it's real. That's also like part of the magical realism. I'm just like, I'm just a girl for magical realism completely. You don't know if it's true or not. You don't know if it happened or not or things like that. But um, it's just, it was just really, really amazing. And you know what? The story was inspired by a true story. You know, Jim Thompson, he used to live with an elderly. He, he is a famous like tea or tea planter or and also like I think like you know these Jim Thompson houses that are around the world they serve very good tea very good coffee yes and he uh -huh. used to live okay. he used to live in the Cameron Highlands as well and he used to live with a Chinese family where one time I'm not sure if it was him or the owner of the house they went somewhere in the jungle and they were never found and that's exactly what the story is based on, that there is a Japanese gardener, Aritomo, and he takes in an apprentice, a Chinese woman who just got over the war and she survived the, the concentration camp that uh, she had to work in. But all of her sister and, you know, the family is completely traumatized. Her sister died. Um, the parents lost their minds. So she's basically alone. And but but her sister loves Japanese gardens. So she wants to build a Japanese garden for her sister. And she finds this Japanese man. She asks him to to build a garden in memory of her sister, but he refuses. But he says, I will take you as an apprentice. You can learn it with me. And and um, that's it. And the, the whole thing is set in, in Malaysia, in Cameron Highlands. It's in a tea plantation. It's a lot of things. In the, the, the story, the plot is set in the 1950s. So it's a lot of like communist uh, civil war inside. There are lots of um, memories about the Second World War in the Asian uh, context. And yes, a lot of things and that very, very um, culturally very rich about Malaysian, Chinese, Japanese culture, st starting from yukiyoi, the, the tattoos and everything that, that you know, the, the essence of Asia. This book is the essence of Asia. I really, I really recommend it to you. You really should give it a read. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the recommendation. It's all right. I reread this book, you know, every year, I would say, because not because it means so much to me. I think it has a different meaning every time because of the magical realism parts. And I can understand the plot in different ways as well. So 
yeah, it, it definitely gave it a special tint this year. Really mm. at the tea plantation, so at the tea plantations, yes. you know, that he was in the landscape that he's describing. Exactly. I was just like, oh, yes, so good. Yeah, I loved it, really. Mm -hmm. One of the um, better books that I read this year, it has a plus next to it, mm -hmm. is about Japanese gardens, but it's the instead of magical realism, it's just real. It is how it's, to. Uh... <laughs> it is a biography of a uh it's it's not a biography per se i don't know what to call it uh but it's a catalog of this author's works uh, so let me step back the book is called zen garden design by shunyo masuno who is a landscape architect he's, he's a garden designer and he gets these high profile projects uh, where you go into some corporate office building and you have this much space, or you're uh, they're erecting a new apartment building in Singapore, and it's funny how Singapore keeps coming up, but nonetheless, you know, and he's got this much space to work with. These are the constraints. They've got old. They've got some visual elements that they want to keep. Maybe uh, the street is too close, and so he works with the environment with what he has, and he infuses his own unique style into creating Japanese gardens. What's interesting about the book is it's not the usual kind of book I would read that's full of words. This book is full of pictures. Oh, wow. It's, got, it's a giant, it's a tabletop book in essence. You're supposed to flip through it, but uh, it's also a lovely read because the intersection of Zen Buddhism doesn't seem necessarily to sit squarely within gardening. Mm -hmm. But insofar as Zen is an approach, uh, this book, really shows how this one zen master and he's a he's a zen master he uh, i don't want to say led a temple but they have a he wasn't the abbot he was the vice abbot of a temple so he has some um some hierarchical status in terms of zen buddhism uh but he still you still see him up to his knees in soil and he's figuring out landscaping moving giant rocks shaping giant rocks to go sit in this garden figuring out what plants where uh and he, he applies it in a very tangible real way that tension is comes through in his work and it comes through in the book as well mm -hmm. uh, in a really lovely way uh, zen garden design Shunmyo Masuno. thank you thank you for the recommendation speaking of zen have you heard about ruth ozeki she, uh, the mean the form of emptiness. Wait, let me just like research. Oh. She, she was Booker Prize shortlisted last year. The Book of Form and Emptiness. Have you heard? That's so funny. Why? Uh, I'm reading a book about cosmology right now. Cosmology being the study, and it's called Cosmological Cohen's. Mm -hmm. uh, cosmology being the study of the broader universe uh, through the lens of Zen Buddhism. And they have a chapter called Form and Emptiness. Yeah. And so when you said that, I said, oh, wait a minute. I haven't made it to that chapter. No spoilers. Okay, please tell me more. <laughs> so about I think, yeah, yeah. I think about. I think she she has a very tight connection to Zen Buddhism because her first book is the Tale of a Time Being. Right. It's about okay. I recommend this book, but to anyone that I recommended it before, 
they said it's boring and they stopped reading it but never mind it's still a good book but it has so much philosophy so basically the whole point is and you will love that the whole point is about this teenage girl who used to live in the states but moved moved back to japan where she was subject to a lot of school bullying and the school you know like hostility because you know she she spoke american english she doesn't understand japanese she was fat because she was just living on junk food and things like that and then teenagers are cruel anyway and um she she gets sent to her grandma who is a zen buddhist priest and um it's a lot of things she meets different japanese mythological characters she's constantly feeling sad because of being bullied she always wants to commit suicide and but in the end you don't know if she commits suicide or not because the whole book plot line is about schrodinger's cat like mm. you know if the thing happened or not you don't know until you open up the box and on the other side of ocean the in california actually i think it starts in san jose to be exact uh there is this lady and i believe ruth ozeki depicted that writer woman of herself who finds a bottle message because this girl sends like you know letters and a lot of things in her in her um desperate desperately trying to reach out to people so in the last you know one of her last attempts is like she writes all of her life story down on a piece of paper or in a, like a small booklet puts it in a bottle and um and brings it to the pacific ocean and then that's what that's what this lady finds one day and that's how the story starts and that's just like it's just amazing of how everything is interconnected and interrelated and very cosmological indeed and mm -hmm. so i guess that uh her second book which was nominated and shortlisted to booker prize in 2021 the book of form and emptiness that twice as thick as the tale of for the time being <laughs> so um i think i think that will be also about similar you know themes in general Isn't it, so first off thank you i was uh while you were telling uh you're giving some lovely background there i was looking up ruth ozeki who has uh, a website just called ruthozeki.com uh and it is it looks just fascinating she was ordained as a soto zen priestess in 2010 um and i and i think all of your ideas seem to be spot on um but you mentioned the length of the book isn't that so difficult to recommend a large book some of my favorite books are large books <laughs> I read a book last year, a fantastic book. I think it should have won the Booker Prize, but the author had already won two Booker Prizes. Uh, and so this one, I guess, was not eligible, but it was 900 pages. Um, and I hope in our last podcast, we touched on it. Uh, Hilary Mantel, who passed away this year, was the writer of the Thomas Cromwell trilogy. And the last book, The Mirror and the Light, was simply magnificent. Mm -hmm. uh, another Booker Prize winner uh, is Eleanor Catton, who wrote The Luminaries, mm -hmm. 800 pages of murder mystery set in the gold mines of New Zealand, Paige Turner, oh, wow. absolutely fantastic. And my favorite book of all time, Mason and Dixon by Thomas Pynchon, 
is uh, Elaine's 787 pages. It's so difficult to recommend these books that lay so close to my heart. Because they are big <laughs> and large. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm working with teenagers. So, you know, the first question is always like, is it long? Is it boring? And things like that. So if anything passes, you know, 150 pages, I guess, I would already just like recommend it with a sigh. And I also mm -hmm. know like, you know, in our capitalist driven uh, consumerist society, where you have to continuously work and produce and reproduce and do things and be productive at all times. It's really hard for some people. It's really hard to uh, devote time for some mental recharge, which is for me books. And that's why I love reading, just to get immersed into a new, new world or into a new something. So you, you shared yeah. your reading list with me, mm -hmm. but, and so I think I know the answer to this. What was the longest book you read this year? Oh my God. I don't count which one is long and which one is not. I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> I'm... Oh, wait, the Killing Commandatore by Murakami. Yes. That's what I would assume I it would be. Like 600. <laughs> and it, it, I went through it months but also because of you know working hours normally i carry a book with me to school but i'm not going to carry a book that takes up my entire backpack right <laughs> it's hardcover it's hardcover even so <laughs> yes i've seen people carry that book around and it just they just look smart like wow <laughs> you must yes. be really serious about reading one yes. qa4 is just a giant book Oh yeah, I'm still reading that one. I haven't finished that one. Oh, one thing. What do you think so far? Sorry to interrupt. 100, 200 pages, but it's really hard. You really have to put your yourself into it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But reminding me of the Japanese and Asian literature in general, my biggest discovery is the Korean literature this year. Oh, I have never, I don't know why, you know, all the BTS and K-pop and everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, all the BTS and K-pop, you know, culture here, but I read very interesting Korean literatures and they are very sad and they depict a very, I'm being judgmental here. They depict a very mentally damaged society in general. It's it's very hard to talk about it because on one part you have the fame and the flatters and everything like you know what we see from Korean you know these doramas just different productions but also the backside is this society which completely sets the beauty standards so high that uh, an average person couldn't past them and also they have this still the parents decide who to marry like there are still some kind of arranged marriages in Korean society I don't know like how it is nowadays this is the blueprint that I got from the mm. books that I have read about the society and it was very hard to read them and it was you know and for example with the if I had your face book all the detailed descriptions of plastic surgery and also like you know those ladies or even boys probably they have completely 
acceptable faces and even beautiful but just because of the beauty standards they want to change you know the tipped chin and coming like the cheekbones should come out more or should you know more blending or depending on the actual beauty standard and it's just like horrible to read on the other hand you have byung chul han the korean philosopher who lives in germany and i just got all of his books on a whim because i read an interview with him and he's just i think he's also like some kind of buddhist um, I know this is kind of difficult, but can you translate the title Akiegis Tarsdam Tarsadharma? Akiegis Tarsadharma, yes, that's the Burnout Society. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I read it in Hungarian, the Burnout Society. Okay. Um... And, but that one was very interesting. It's also, it's all about like capitalism should go to hell and it's not good. It's a consumerist society that we live in and it's not good for the earth it's not good for our mental health it's not good for the people it's not good in general but then there is you know what is the solution because you know it's it's it, it was very interesting and it means all it, it, he named all the evil of today's society even social media that is just destroying but what was more captivating for me from his book was the saving beauty that that was my favorite one and let me just research quickly because I remember that from Saving Beauty, I quoted a lot. I, I, I saved a lot of um, beautiful quotes. Transparency and beauty do not go together, for example. Mm -hmm. In digital beauty, the negativity of the other is entirely removed. The, neg yeah. the negativity of pain reduces the sense of beauty. A selfie is precisely such an empty, expressionless face. The addictive taking of selfies points towards the inner emptiness of the ego. Today, nothing injures. This impermanence also affects the ego and destabilizes it, makes it insecure. And just this insecurity, this anxiousness about oneself, produces the addictive taking of selfies, produces a self that is idling and never comes to rest. Yeah, I just... I just love, I just love him, really. He's just so I feel personally attacked. On. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Do you take a lot of selfies or why? I took a selfie today that I was so proud of until I heard this quote. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. But it's okay. Like we are all in this society and it's just very... It's good to think about these things. It was very aesthetically beautiful thing to read. Mm. how beauty and pain are linked together but i'm not sure if it's necessarily so in every way you know what i mean but then it's also like i can relate to that because from my literature studies and also from the literature that i like to read the most beautiful love affairs or the most beautiful love poems were also made of platonic relationships or platonic feelings not from actual relationships so yeah he's somewhat right <laughs> okay yeah i um this is lovely and fun talking these abstract realms of philosophy and beauty and truth i have a question about the opposite have you used a book that you've read this year to make money or to 
apply uh, to apply what you learned in the book to something in your life that you wanted to change since uh, byung chul han are the only uh, his books are the only books that i read and they are not fiction and the other ones are all fiction my okay. my <laughs> short answer is no <laughs> the extended <laughs> answer is i'm working on it <laughs> okay fair enough I, um, what about you? I didn't make a project of it. I didn't make a project of it this year, but uh, because so many of my books were nonfiction, mm -hmm. uh, it felt natural that some of them uh, would intersect with, with things that I can apply in a very real way. And it happened in the most unexpected way. So uh, for the entire month of October, I moved to a city in Canada called Whitehorse. Population 30,000, and it's on the 60th parallel. It is very far north. It's the capital of the Yukon. Uh, when most people think of the Yukon, they think of the Klondike Gold Rush and maybe not much else. And indeed, uh, I found that to be, uh, well, I ended up there for a month uh, by choice because I thought there was maybe more there. I wasn't sure. I and took then there was a roadblock by snow. <laughs> and after that. <laughs> <laughs> but I told people the plane ran out of gas, <laughs> so, but they did have one parachute and I won rock, paper, scissors. And so I ended up in Whitehorse, Canada. And of course, whenever I go to somewhere, I end up in a bookstore. Funny story. Um, I called a friend of mine and I said, Hey, I'm in, um, Whitehorse, Canada right now. And he said, Hey, how's the library? And I was like, oh, how did you know I was just in the library? And he was like, Adam, I've known you for 20 years. I know you were just in the library. And so while I was there, I wanted to learn more about the place. And when you go somewhere new, I think that's what you're doing in Asia, is you're using literature to learn about the place that you're yes, in. And so that's right. it's benefiting you in all kinds of ways. I didn't have that kind of time in Whitehorse to read a lot of Yukon fiction. And so I picked up a book called uh, History Hunting in the Yukon by mm. Michael Gates. And I really recommend this book for people who live in the Yukon, <laughs> which isn't so many. There's, the entire place is uh, is very large, population 40,000, 30,000 of whom live in one city, uh, and that city being Whitehorse. Uh, the book itself is a lovely historical tour. Now, the thing about Whitehorse is the history is so finite. You can memorize 30 names and 40 places. and you've got a really good grasp on the history and i know this because when i would talk to locals they would offer me jobs they would say hey adam one of our big industries is actually tourism and you would be great leading a tour with this oh, knowledge wow. that you keep spouting off about <laughs> and so i didn't mean to learn uh, or read a book to profit myself but that being said i may be a tour guide next summer in the yukon <laughs> And it will be because of my love of books. Yeah, that's right. We learn so much about the books, even like, you know, without a purpose or just like not planning it unintentionally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, about Zen Buddhism, <laughs> for instance. And yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your uh, white horse story. Oh, my pleasure. I've got I've got more if we've got time, but I'm not going to force it on you. <laughs> Thank you.
Why why do you read more nonfiction than fiction? That question is lingering in me for quite a while. For the same reason that you evinced frustration earlier. So many of the plot lines, I feel like I can see them coming. Um, it, uh, I don't know where to begin as far as looking for new ones. Uh, I avidly read those that I hear if I'm on the, if I'm listening to the radio and I happen to hear a book recommendation, because of course the things I listen to on the radio are incredibly nerdy or if somebody passes along a fiction book recommendation and thank you, Elsa. Um, <laughs> I very happily pick up fiction. In fact, I read a, a book that I heard on the radio this year called The Everlasting. Mm -hmm. And I hung around because the book was interesting. It took place in Rome in the year 2000. And then next section of the book, it took place in Rome in the year 1700. And then next section of the book, it took place in Rome in the year 400. And the next part of the book took place in Rome in the year 200. And that part was really quite interesting. And then they revisited it 200, 400, 1700, 2000. And you got to see it all kind of come together mm -hmm. in a really pleasant way. Uh, the everlasting. It featured some characters that you wouldn't normally encounter. One person whose job it was to, he was a crypt keeper. His job was literally to, at the church, look over the dead bodies and make sure that they were putrefying and decaying um, and seeing if there were any religious signs that can be taken. And it sounds like the worst job in the world. And he's not the smartest monk at his church. And that's probably why he got the job. But that's a window into a life I never had thought about or would even have a window into if it weren't for this recommendation. Hmm. Wow. This sounds so, so deep. <laughs> I know I want to read this book. <laughs> I I also read poetry and some of the deepest joy in my literary life this year came from the following poem. I'm going to read you a, I'm going to recite a poem to you. Okay. It's called How Birds Sing by Kay Ryan. One is not taxed, one need not practice. One simply tips the throat back over the spine axis and asserts the chest. The wings and the rest compress a musical squeeze, which floats a series of notes upon the breeze. How Birds Sing by Kay Ryan. Oh, I love that poem. <laughs> <laughs> that was very lovely indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Our time is coming to an end. I guess it's very late for you already, so. <laughs> oh, sorry, did the camera pick that up? <laughs> any <laughs> any resolutions for New Year 2023, book-wise? Uh, yeah, um, I look forward to uh, turning my love of literature and applying it to the benefit of people around me in some way, shape, or form. Hmm. Nice. Thank you and happy holidays. Elza, the pleasure has been mine and I look forward to getting a list of your recommendations so that I can borrow from them very liberally. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for being with us for this month as well and follow Elsa Mundo. Stay tuned for more book reviews.
Bye! So the poet for the first poem that I read, uh, the poem was called How Birds Sing. Her name is Kay Ryan. And in the book Elephant Rocks, she has another poem that I really liked. And this one is called Imaginary Eskimos. Who knows if Eskimos choose to go with flows or just go? Regretting motion, missing a fixed position vis-a-vis -vis the ocean. It is easy to suppose that anyone whom one is not is predisposed to like her lot, that when she drills down beneath the ice to fish and sees the black and restless drift and fights against the cold occlusion which always threatens, that it is easier for that type of person. Imaginary Eskimos by Kay Ryan.